0: The realm. Do you know what the realm is?
1: It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies. A story we agree to tell each other over and over... till we forget that it's a lie.
2: But what do we have left
1: once we abandon the lie? Chaos. A gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder.
0: Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of A Storm of Spoilers. My name is Dave Gonzalez, and I have not read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire.
2: And I'm Neil Miller, and I've read all the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, even even the the supplemental ones. And you guys have accessed the very special
0: pod pack Edition of the Storm of Spoilers podcast, which means you may not be Storm of Spoilers listeners. As a matter of fact, I hope we get to reach out to some new people as well as get to talk to our fans. Our show uh, initially started off as being a podcast about the HBO show Game of Thrones that would use knowledge from the Song of Ice and Fire novels to predict what was happening or talk about execution or adaptation. And since the third book is called Storm of Swords, we thought we'd name ourselves a Storm of Spoilers. We're not necessarily here to ruin anything, we feel like we are enriching the Game of Thrones watching experience by having a knowledge that things like the books exist and in the most recent seasons things like the internet exist, It's been really weird for us in uh, Season 7 because of some internet spoilers, but the important thing is we still don't know anything about the endgame of Game of Thrones or of the novel series of which there's at least Winds of Winter and maybe a seventh book coming out to close the whole thing out. So we thought we would take some time, and this is a very special episode, to debate about how we think the show is actually going to end now that we have all these crazy new rules about whites, now that we have uh, book characters uh, like Gendry that have been metamorphosized into this like super important show character, how do we think that the show is going to make the most out of both being an adaptation and kind of being the best A Song of Ice and Fire fan fiction we have uh, going out there? First of all, Joanna Robinson, did I mischaracterize anything about our show or or... or Game of Thrones?
1: I don't think so. I think you're perfect in every way.
0: Oh, that's an exaggeration, <laughs> but I'll take it. I just want to check with my book reader people, because as you heard on the intro, I'm almost 100% television show, and a few pages of the George R. R. Martin World of Ice and Fire book, but only when I really need to like, have some world building. So I'm going to go with uh, one of my favorite theories on how the show, and that we've organically come to while talking to our podcast, which is we want... The battle between the Night's King and uh, the realms of the living, whether or not Cersei Lannister decides to pull her forces up north, uh, really should be hard and intense and fast but oh, it would take place in the first one or two episodes of this abbreviated six-episode season so that we could spend the rest of the time dealing with the fallout or the uh, scourge of the Shire for the the, the JR. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings fans, but the, the aftermath of the greater content where we get to see how Westeros sorts out. I want there to be a ruler that isn't one of our main characters, if I'm really, like... Deep in my heart, I would like them all oh, to get so to like, live. So, um, like
2: the Sea Lord of Bravos,
0: yeah, like at the you know, if they were like, let's get somebody who knows about democracy over here. We'll get the democratically elected Sea Lord of Bravos. Yeah, I'm just saying, or like a council or some sort of thing where uh, it's not um, a, a kingdom that's built on. The conquering of Aegon, uh, burning you know swords into a throne, but rather a kingdom that's built on we all fought this war together and came out with this. Even if Daenerys really wants to sit on her uh, family throne, I feel like I'm 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 more into that than I am into the what would be the more traditional. Hero's journey way out, which is a happy, happily ever after, or a but they live on in their children. Uh, sunsets over the Red Keep, and we, we circle circle wipe out. So, I, I might be controversial in that I don't want anybody to win the Game of Thrones, but I am a big fan of breaking the wheel. Like
2: actually, hmm. Okay,
0: Neil, do you, how do you think the show's gonna end?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. Dave um, <laughs> there's uh, there's a lot of theories out there and I think really how you have to kind of break it down is like how much does prophecy matter so like is the whole um, Azor high prophecy which is that there is a hero that will end the long nights, um, is that are we gonna see like a literal interpretation of that or um, is it just sort of like a figurative thing yeah um, I definitely see a situation, so I've been thinking about bittersweet, which is the, the thing that we always come back to that George R. R. Martin says about his ending, that it is bittersweet. And I'm thinking, okay, well, like, how does that manifest itself in an ending? And I think about Daenerys Targaryen being, you know, you, you kind of have to ask yourself, like, who is the main character of the story? And is it Jon or is it Daenerys? So let's assume this is Daenerys for a second. So what's the most bittersweet way for it to end uh, for Daenerys? I would say that this idea of... And this sort of breaks my preferred... Because what you described where they wrap up the battle very quickly is my preferred way for them to execute season eight. But this sort of breaks that. So huge hypocrite right here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the idea is that Daenerys and Jon get together they fall in love they disregard the fact that they're aunt, no, aunt and nephew um and then they have a child and they ha- they do all this before the end of the battle is wrapped up like the war rages on you know maybe the maybe they they hold off the the army of the dead in the north long enough for daenerys to have the baby and then daenerys ultimately ends up having to sacrifice herself um in order to defeat the Night King and end the Long Night. Like, she is Azor High. And, you know, the what's left is Jon Snow, single dad king. And he has to raise this child So pouty. skills. Very pouty situation. Uh, so that, I, I think, is... That's one strong case is that it's Daenerys who dies. Because I think at this point, everyone sort of assumes that if there is a... Sacrificial figure that is going to die winning this war—it's Jon Snow. Um, but I really think that it's more likely that it's Daenerys and the last of the dragons. Like, like the magic all dies out with her.
0: Yeah. Well, we've been doing a lot an of
2: interesting way to play it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Neil and I have been assuming, which we know makes a ass out of you and Neil. So let's turn to Joanna. <laughs> And see how she thinks Game of Thrones is going to end. Because we gave her the most difficult one, which is coming in third. But that's because we have the confidence that she has well, the truth.
1: I don't know if you guys have heard, but George R. Martin described this ending as bitter... Oh, shit. You already covered that. <laughs> um, <no. laughs> I was talking about this on uh, with some very smart Game of Thrones community people on Twitter today. Sort of about the whole Azor Ahai... Prophecy and how we could see it repeat itself uh, now, but probably you know, given the way that George R. R. Martin works, at least um, probably there's going to be a twist on it, right? So like maybe one of daenerys's dragons will be Lightbringer or you know something like that. Um, but the the point seemed to be with the Azor Ahai thing. Who, Azor Ahai is this hero who. Uh, plunged his sword into the heart of his wife, his beloved Nisa Nisa, in order to make Lightbringer the, the sword that he would need to defeat, to ve- like beat back the long night. Um, so the point seems to be uh, giving up the thing you love the most in order to, um, you know, win, like, right? The ultimate sacrifice. So that's why I think. Um, maybe because i love buffy season two too much but like the daenerys will have to give up Jon snow um if she does if they convince me in the next few episodes that she loves him more than she loves her dragons or she'll have to give up more of her dragons she has to give maybe drogon is the thing she loves the most or maybe her dream of ruling the kingdom is the thing she loves the most i think it comes down to like figuring out what matters most to these heroes for john i mean john just like yeah, uh, you know, this this is a theory that Jason Concepcion over at The Ringer has, but like that John just wants to die. That like that's one of we you know, we're recording this right after watching the episode Beyond the Wall where John does not get on Drogon, but sort of decides to go back and kill more Zombies, and part of that, uh, you know, is his like hero complex. Another part is just sort of maybe his death wish. Like he just is done with this world <laughs> and
0: wants <laughs> to move on.
1: Um, but but certainly, what John does not want to do is rule. Uh, so you know, it would be bittersweet to put him on the throne. Unlike Aragorn, you know, you might make a good king like Aragorn in, in Tolkien, but like he doesn't want to be king. He doesn't even want to be here. like he's like I'm not even supposed to be here today. Right? So, he's like I'm supposed
2: to be dead. Yeah, like two seasons ago. <laughs>
1: So, I don't know if we're going to end up with like a zombie king or a grieving uh, queen, or as Dave pointed out, someone else entirely on the throne when it's all said and done. Sea Lord of
2: Bravos. Uh, the
1: Sea Lord of Bravos. But, uh. Uh, you know, uh, other predictions that I have for the final season or how it's all going to end, both in the show and the books, is that Arya's assassin training will finally pay off and she'll kill the Night King or at least get close. Um, and that brands uh, like, Three-Eyed Raven warging skills will pay off, and he will warg into Viserion, the zombie dragon. So, wait, wait.
0: The Arya Night King thing's real? It's not just one of those things we tossed around on our podcasts to, like, talking about crazy things? What do you mean, real? Like, of the Song of Ice and Fire, it's going to come down to Arya Stark, the failed faceless man, going on like an assassination I,
1: I don't know why else you would train Aria to be a crazy assassin for so long why else would you bother building the ultimate killing she might fail but I feel like she's gonna get close at least you know I, I feel uh, yeah
0: I, I guess it's just in my mind the Aria storyline and the Night King storyline are so separate that like even the idea of them supposed to end up in the same place it's 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 for me if arya has a place in the end game it's as an influencing action on somebody else i can't
2: like I, she it's, kills it's, cersei
1: i just don't right. know i don't know why else we would have her training for so long maybe she kills cersei sure um the other thing that I think we'll definitely see in this battle, however long the battle lasts is uh, a deus ex machina or 11 because uh, both the show and the books are into deus ex machina's. Uh, Tolkien is huge into giant eagle deus ex Machinas. Someone on Twitter this week said to me, it's all giant eagles now. And I was like, it is kind of all giant <laughs> eagles now. Um, and uh, you know, so I expect to see Nymeria and the Wolf Pack again. I expect to see Melisandra and some Red Priests again. Like I expect to see these forces show up that like have been missing for a little while um, to help in the Great War to come. But in the end, as we learned in this week's episode, it's all going to come down to killing one thing, uh, and that's the Night King. So,
2: I have a question. Yeah. Have you guys heard of this theory, this very <laughs> old theory about how Winterfell is lightbringer? No. No. Okay, this is really great. I, I was reading this today and I was like, wait, what? So okay, so let's break down the Azora High thing. So and, and this actually weaves together two big prophecies. There is the Daenerys is going to be betrayed three times prophecy and then there is the someone is the prince who has promised prophecy so what do we know about Lightbringer so let's say Lightbringer is metaphorical it's not literally a sword but maybe it could end up being a sword um, but it is a what do they call it's a sword forged three times and so if you think about Winterfell this is what I like about it uh, it was tempered in water and broke The it was overcome by uh, Theon and it was then uh, overwhelmed by the... Because li- they say that the Azor high pulled it out of a lion's heart. The lions and the Boltons, the Boltons and the Lannisters, took it over. And then John had to rescue it. So and then the third tempering of the blade was in the heart and soul of Azor's most beloved Nissa Nissa. So... This theory goes on to say, and this is directly from Reddit. It is credited to a Reddit user called One Eyed Cheshire, which I thought was clever. Um, so here's what they say about the third forging. Now, the third forging. I think this leads to the bittersweet ending GRRM has promised and Danny's third betrayal. After Danny makes it to Westeros, I believe that R plus L equals J will be revealed and John and Danny will fall in love. This will be in the middle of the fight against the others. I believe two of Danny's dragons will have died by this point of the invasion and she will be left with only Drogon the last child she will ever have because she's barren. Drogon equals her soul Dany will be Nissa Nissa and Jon Snow must bind her soul Drogon to Lightbringer Winterfell in order to bring to order to fight back the others so basically it comes down to Drogon's the last dragon that they have and for some reason Jon needs to sacrifice Drogon Maybe it is to create more um, Valerian steel. We've talked on our show a lot about the idea that Valerian steel requires dragon blood. And what they realize is that they, they need the, the Valerian steel more than they need the dragon. And he sort of betrays Danny by killing her. And then maybe John goes off to fight and dies. And the bittersweetness of the ending is they never they never make up and Daenerys is left without her lover and her dragons, but the knight's king is gone. So this is like a really fascinating theory because it really weaves together a lot of stuff, and it's actually a theory that was written like pre, um, the like like when the last book came out, I believe. So it's not even a it's not even a this includes stuff from the show. Um, this is like somebody. Uh, let's hold on. If I can find the date of when this was written,
0: which is like putting together all the the first level sources, right? Just
2: just putting together. So this is from four years ago, and it's in the Song of Ice and Fire Reddit. Um, so this is pre the show going off the books. It's super fascinating. I like and the I idea think...
0: of it some being something that complex. If it is going to be a translation of the Zorheim metaphor, because like I don't know. It was like the 10th anniversary of Bioshock a few weeks back, and I was watching uh, old videos of Bioshock the video game. Bioshock the video game has a big twist in it, and when the twist happens, I'm not going to spoil a 10-year-old video game because who knows? (laughs) I want you to listen to our podcast other times. Um, But uh, if you go back, that twist is very present from the beginning of the game if you could notice it, which means it's cool but it also means it's p- pulling a very obvious trail uh i think through the whole narrative if it were something as like complex as winterfell as lightbringer i feel like that would be just batch it crazy enough that uh nobody would notice
2: yeah i i think it's really fascinating because it also involves john following the priority that the number one thing is to win the war it he's not about ruling he's not about so it kind of weaves everything together i, I think i kind of like this one that it involves some sort of betrayal of daenerys by john so i, I mean yeah.
0: that what we do know for sure and what we've come to the ultimate conclusion of is george r, r. martin said it would be bittersweet and that is no help given the seven <laughs> seasons of narrative and five novels of world building to actually knowing the end so I feel like the best thing to do would be I'm going to tell you all where you could find all of us in just a second but you could find the podcast in between seasons of Game of Thrones we cover other pop culture with the thoughtfulness that you just heard here and you could find the rest of us around the internet Joanna Robinson where can people find you
1: you can find me on VanityFair.com you can follow me on Twitter at Joe and Mr. Neil Miller
2: Uh, You can get me over at Filmschoolrejects.com. Follow me on Twitter at Rejects. I also like to tweet stuff from our show account, which is at Storm of Spoilers.
0: And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E and my writing at Thrillist.com and my other podcast at FightingInTheWarRoom.com. I hope you enjoy your podcast pack. We certainly are. Oh, I see you're still here. You must be interested in Storm of Spoilers, like really interested in Storm of Spoilers. You should know that when Game of Thrones isn't on, which is about to be the majority of the time, uh, we do an off-season tour where we look at other pop culture happenings, some television shows. uh, We did the Harry Potter play Uh, We do a lot of uh, Netflix shows, um, a lot of superhero cinema, and uh, I'm going to give you a little snippet from one of our more popular episodes. It was our Rogue One episode. We split it into both spoiler and non-spoiler sections like we do... For uh, currently happening pop culture, so you could watch at your leisure. Uh, this is a section from the non-spoiler part of our Rogue One, uh, Star Wars of spoilers off-season tour. Off-season tour. The point being, even though you like Game of Thrones and we like Game of Thrones, there's a lot of time that you know we could fill with talking about uh, not Game of Thrones things with our same enthusiasm. I mean, especially Star Wars, right,
1: Joanna? As we predicted, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this. As we predicted, like, what was it, over a year ago when we recorded a spoiler special on Star Wars, that this movie ends, like, bang, right up against A New Hope. Right. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, I guess, I guess the thing I, I will say the most is, you know, we're, we're not going to talk too much about the Vader stuff because that's going to go in the spoiler section, but, um, it's interesting to have this movie as a lead up to A New Hope because A New Hope is, I think, a fantastic movie. I love that movie. Who doesn't love A New Hope? You're wrong and dead inside if you don't like a new- love A New Hope. But that Star Wars is a more simplistic, cheesier Star Wars. Intent- like Intentionally so, based on, you know. Well, they just old- don't
0: show the Leia torturing by Darth Vader scene or any of that stuff. And like mm-hmm. Alderaan never gets a shot from its surface before it's blown up <laughs> so it's, they I dance around it but it's it's still a war movie
1: no I don't mean that I mean I mean you know the the line some of the lines are stupid and some of the acting's bad and like it doesn't matter because it's like a hokey fun space adventure movie right like right. and it doesn't matter if you're if your villain is the cartoon and it doesn't matter you know if you, if your hero is also a cartoon because it's just like really fun but it's so funny when you put this shade of shades of gray movie right up in front of it. Um, any part of uh, A New Hope that bleeds into this movie looks simple and weird by comparison like uh, I don't know how much I can talk about um, but yeah I guess I guess to me it makes A New Hope look like a kids movie which it kind of is and I love A New Hope and I don't mean that as an insult but I feel like this is, this is a more nuanced Star Wars storytelling and it makes A New Hope look Simpler, flatter by comparison. That's what I would say.
2: Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I do, I agree to a certain extent, I will say that it did add a new layer to the story that exists in A New Hope, especially from the Rebellion side, because what we witness in Rogue One is really the Rebellion struggling and sacrificing and sort of stumbling toward a... A really big victory, which uh, in the larger canon of Star Wars, this, as I understand it, is is kind of one of their their first big victories, which kind of kicks off them ultimately uh, vanquishing the Empire. So, I thought that was interesting, and i I do wonder, Dave, if you kind of got that same sense as someone who's read a lot of expanded universe stuff, um, or if that only works for people who uh, never read a bunch of books.
0: I mean, I think the first thing that jumped to my mind after this is th- I had forgotten in years and years of watching Star Wars that the opening crawl for A New Hope says that this is like the Rebels' first victory, like, was right before the movie starts. And that's when they, you know, got the weapons. So I I feel like Rogue One gives me a better understanding of the rebels like haven't had have been like a unified force like this movie starts and they're like factions of the alliance uh that they have to like fight amongst themselves and so they sort of unify at the end so it's nice and a new hope that you know we get to end with the big metal ceremony and everybody's you know having a great time and the rebellion's a real thing even though they just destroyed a super weapon not the empire takes two more movies or maybe like eight more movies to do that we haven't figured it out <laughs> but i also what I really liked and what I was hoping that this movie wouldn't let me down for is the Darth Vader that shows up on Leia's ship at the beginning of a new hope is pissed. He's yelling. He chokes a guy with his bare hands and lifts him off the ground He's just like completely short with people, and throughout the rest of the series, we never see Darth Vader that pissed. Even when he learns that Padme is fake dead, and he says no, it doesn't like read as actually being pissed. So I was like, whatever you do, Rogue One, show me why Vader's that pissed, and don't, you know, don't waste that opportunity. And I don't, I don't think they
2: did. Hmm, that's, that's a good a, point. That's
1: a, yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought
2: about that. Hmm cool
1: that almost Um, makes vader worth it for me almost oh
2: my god are you kidding we're gonna talk about this this yeah jesus we need to table the darth vader talk there's a lot to say there uh this one relatively quick this is from at heathen underscore king another longtime uh listener and twitter follower you guys are awesome and on it this week uh We've heard this is a war film. Which war film does it remind you of? I will get the most obvious one out of the way, which is it's got a very Dirty Dozen vibe to it um, because of all the different people that kind of come together. It also, in my mind, has a bit of a Seven Samurai-ish feel. Uh, there's no defending of a village or anything, but the different personalities that come together to ultimately assemble the rogue squadron uh, at the end is is pretty pretty Seven Samurai-ish in my mind. So what do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I'd say any sort of, uh, oh, God, what do you call it? Pacific theater? Um, is that what they call it? Yeah, uh, Pacific theater's good. Uh, World War II movie because, um, you know, the, the the final battle, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's in the trailer, it takes place on, the, like, a beach part of a planet. So you've got a lot of, like, um, Pacific... Uh, fighting. That's not a specific answer for you. Thin Red Line, right? That's that's so specific. Uh, is it? Oh, yeah. God. That one Please. has a lot more like stalking. Yeah. Nobody like, nobody's but like I don't drink, know. I just, tracked through stuff in this I'm, movie. I'm thinking about like water deaths, but I guess there aren't a lot of water deaths. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, platoon. I'll give you platoon or mm, Apocalypse okay. Now. Sort of. I, once again, it's a jungly vibe, but also sort of. Uh, bombing
0: from over head five okay i'm done all right interesting i'm gonna t- try to help this listener not by recommending good war movies but by trying to give them a visual <laughs> style um i think it, it has a lot in common with the 13th warrior the movie where antonio mm. banderas plays an arab man that helps the vikings which yes. makes like no sense but the reason why <laughs> is when we're talking about like uh war movies uh especially on this game of Thrones podcast when we've been talking about warfare it's often like huge groups of people being thrown against each other and even in star wars you're used to the idea of like the clone wars of like here comes a line of like battle droids this is definitely like get for cover uh you know be make 10 men feel like 100 like we're against the odds so we gotta kind of fight as dirty as we can not necessarily a Let's line up and march to our freedom to save Jon Snow, sort of uh, war,
2: visions. right? And there's there is a lot of, um, and this actually goes to to what Joanna said about the Pacific War movies. There's a lot of like bottleneck warfare where you have people coming mm-hmm. out of a tunnel, and it never feels like there are thousands of people engaged in battle, but there feels like there's a lot of like thirty people, thirty person battles going on at the same time. So. Right. Um, I think I thought that was really, really interesting. There are moments, and this has a lot to do with the way this was shot. Uh they shot it with the same 70 millimeter lenses that Quentin Tarantino used Mm. on Hateful Eight, which I found out touring ILM. (laughs) Um there they gave us a little VFX tour. And one of the things that Gareth Edwards uh told me when we talked about it was that it was sort of a nightmare for the focus puller because the combined with the uh r e cameras that they used had this incredible depth of field, and it's one of those things, and I'm not comparing this to saving private Ryan, but there are moments in this movie where there is crossfire happening. And the amount of depth you get is really incredible. So there, there are elements, there are little flashes of of some of that Saving Private Ryan, beach of Normandy yeah. stuff in this yeah. movie, which is uh, uh, it's really cool.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. You don't need to be in the Pacific to to be fighting on a beach with some shaky cam. <laughs> um, the uh, The last thing I'll say: this isn't a war movie. Uh, I think I can say this in the non spoiler section. Back to the future. That's a good parallel for our final war. war uh, uh, we'll talk about that more later. Okay. That's yeah, all. I'm confused yeah, by I'm that. I'm super interested. confused. I'm, I'm yeah. ready. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. And then the last one, uh, which comes from at Lenoir Autour. Um, also does this a
1: longtime ma- listener.
2: Another longtime listener. Great. Uh, great
1: job, guys.
2: The does this make you want more or less side stories in the new Star Wars universe, which uh, obviously speaks to uh, all the rumored Star Wars stories that are out there and the one that's literally shooting.
1: Well, so what's interesting. Sorry, I'm just going to jump in here. Uh, What's interesting is that a lot of the other stories that we've heard about are are much more concretely connected to the films we saw. So you've got like a Han Solo prequel or, you know, a rumored Boba Fett movie, that sort of stuff. Um, the original pitch for this was, as I said earlier, kind of so much more divorced from the Skywalker saga, um, despite the fact that it straddles the prequels and the original trilogy. Uh, I am more interested in these, these stories that are divorced from what we know of Star Wars. I think, I just think it's so interesting to try to define what makes a Star Wars movie outside of the Skywalkers and the characters we already know. And I think uh, rogue one had an opportunity to do that. And with sort of mixed results. And I, I think something that Dave and maybe Neil and I have talked about before is these, they were once called anthology films. Now they're calling them a Star Wars story, but these anthology, I'm going to call them anthology. Anyway, these anthology films, giving directors an opportunity to play sort of jazz riffs on Star Wars. I don't know if they'll let them do it again after, after Rogue One. I really get the sense that Lucasfilm regrets letting Gareth Edwards, and this is me guessing, regrets letting Gareth Edwards have as much freedom as they, as he did in his initial shoot. And then sort of reining that back in in the reshoots. And um so I don't know that we'll see that again, but, but I, I would be interested in that. What do you guys think?
0: Dave, Uh I'm less on what Joanna said side, <laughs> except uh, I do agree with her that I think Lucasfilm is going to tighten it up. Uh But just because it occurs to me that this defines what is a Star Wars movie to me. And so if it's not going to be about one of the characters and it's not going to be about what I care about, which is like the force or a government, then I'm not sure that I necessarily need stuff like this. I've got a new Dawn. I've got Tarkin. I've got Lords of the Sith. I've got tons of novels that tell smaller stories about characters doing cool things. Uh, if I want to go, go see a movie, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say come up with, with go. I don't want to give directors the ability to do whatever they want with Star Wars, because when we let George Lucas do that, we got the prequels and that's like, barely Star Wars, everything's clean, the Jedi fly. It's just like, it took a long time. It took like a decade of my life to reorient to like being okay, that that's part of Star Wars history. Or like now I put it, it's like World War Two. You need to remember that it happened, but you don't need to relive it every, <laughs> every year of your life. So it's like, I... I am very interested. This hooked me for the, all the reasons that everybody is gonna say is stupid and what's stupid about movie going, which is like, it, uh, was fun characters. It was the ride I needed, but then there were also little threads to lead me down other paths into other novels. And then it led directly into the saga, which I still consider core Star Wars. Uh, in like the story that we're telling, that's the Journal of the Wills. That's the thing we have to get to the end to before I die, in order to make you know life feel complete.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I I also consider the Skywalker Saga the core of of Star Wars. Like, I, I'm not trying to like gut Star Wars or or dilute it to the point that it's unrecognizable. I just I think that you know we talk about, especially in the in the context of Marvel, we talk about the ability to make. Truly distinct feeling films within a large franchise. Um, and I, I would just like that opportunity for some of the great filmmakers, you know, like Ryan Johnson. Like, I want his, his film to feel like a Ryan Johnson film, um, as much as it can in a Star Wars context. Uh, the other thing, and I, and I'm interested to hear what Neil has to say about this, but the other thing I want to say, Dave, is that, um, didn't really, I should have, it should have occurred to me. <laughs> that this film would stra- scratch the same itch that Ultron did for you, which is that you and I disagreed vehemently in Ultron because I thought it had a lot of problems with the story and you really got a lot out of the various uh, tendrils that it sent out into further franchise films. Mm-hmm. And um it's just occurring to me now that that's exactly one of the reasons why you might really like Rogue One one of uh, is that it sends these tendrils out to books or anime series or comic books or video games or future films yeah. or mass we're, we're films. still in
0: we're still in the first act is open so there is blue milk within the first two minutes of this film and I chuckle <laughs> to myself and I'm like that's how we're gonna play it huh let's do this thing You can listen to the rest of the Rogue One off-season tour episode at stormspoilers.com. Thank you so much again uh, for participating in this pod pack, and I hope you uh, come join us for more Game of Thrones and more other stuff.